3: Come on, Piggy. At least say something.
1: I hate you.
3: See? That's good. Now we have a dialogue going.
1: I can't believe you went to see other puppets. Is it that French marionette?
3: Well, every puppet wants to try a marionette.
1: You disgust me. I hope she gives you warts on your little... Fine,
3: fine. I don't think we want to go there. Look, I agreed that in all statements to the press... We'd say it was your idea that you're the one who wants to start seeing other puppets.
1: We did? I do? I mean, I do. But not puppets. They disgust me. I wouldn't mind giving John Ham a tumble if he had a different last name.
3: That's great. That's the whole idea of the separation. We each get to experiment. As Fleetwood Mac said, you can go your own way. It's my favorite band.
1: Yes. It would be.
3: So, you want to introduce the show?
1: Ah, I suppose so. This is a show about puppets who bring delight to people of all ages until you find out they're double-dealing two-timing amphibians with pathetic midlife crises. Getting off track here. So settle in and enjoy it. And now, the last living member of the Fireball XL5 fan club, Colin McEnroe.
4: I did love Fireball XL5. It's actually true that at my university a well-known university located in New Haven, we would occasionally reenact Fireball XL5 action scenes as marionettes. Anyway, we didn't know that uh, Miss... Piggy and Kermit were going to actually have a sort of possibly publicity stunt separation in the news on the week that we were doing a puppet show. This, puppet, this show about puppets has been planned for a long time, but there you go. It's sort of as, uh, as accurate as today's headlines. And by the way, thank you to Lydia Brown for being Miss Piggy in that intro. All right, so we're going to talk about puppets today. The reason, the, the main uh, occasion for this is, in fact, uh, this incredible uh, puppet festival, the National, puppet Fe- National Puppetry Festival of 2015, which will run out there at uh, stores at the epicenter of American puppetry, one could argue, uh, August 10th through the 16th. Uh, we've got uh, with us here in studio Bart Rockenburton Jr. He's the director of the Puppet Arts Program at the University of Connecticut and John Bell, director of the Ballard Institute and Museum of Puppetry and an associate professor of puppetry. Uh, so we're going to talk a lot in, particularly in, in our second and third segments on the show today about what's going to happen in that festival, what's coming in uh, from the uh, international world of puppetry. There's a lot of things that sort of qualify as puppetry, that aren't maybe your exact traditional idea uh, of a puppet. We're also going to talk a little bit about the psychology right now of puppets and puppetry. Joining us is Robert Askins, a playwright whose hand of God has become, I like saying this, a smash Broadway hit. I like saying smash. A smash Broadway hit was nominated for five Tonys this year, um, and it's a very tough ticket to get, as I have found a couple of times uh, already. So, uh, Robert Askins, first of all, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. And uh, welcome to Bart and John, who are here in studio with us. Um, I want to sort of maybe begin by a, with a, a quote from uh, Basil Twist, who's also a big deal in puppetry, puppetry these days. He said, the crucial point about puppets is that they are real and unreal at the same time. Um, Bart, that's sort of something that, that, if there's one true statement about puppets, that might be it, right? One thing that applies, that somehow or they're, they're, they're on that balance, they're, they're playing with our own ideas about what's real and what's not.
0: Th- that's absolutely true. Um, uh, it, it relies on our imagination to help bring them to life. And I would add to that statement that they are both alive and dead at the same time.
4: You now, why is that significant or why do you mean that? We,
0: we are taking an object that has no life and moving it in such a way to give apparent life that requires the audience to join us in that creation in, in creating that illusion.
4: And, and John, is that part of the reason the puppets occasionally do freak people out? Yeah, I think
2: so, They, because uh, you you don't know whether they're alive or dead, and we play on that all the time. And then at the same time, you do know that they aren't dead, but then you're participating in this, this uh, game to say that they are alive. So it's constantly bringing up this question of identity and existence, even though we're making jokes about – uh, uh, Miss Piggy and, uh, and Kermit, or about religion or, or whatever. B- uh, behind it all are some, always some pretty interesting and uh, complex
4: ideas. So it's
2: entertaining and enthralling.
4: So, Robert Askins, I've read, I've not seen, but I've read that um, occasionally, maybe even on opening night of Hand to God, uh, there were people who kind of got up and fled, who got uh, a, a little scared. I mean, this isn't a scary, necessarily a very scary show. I mean, it's a, a, a dark comedy. First of all, is that true? Are people occasionally freaked out by Tyrone, the puppet?
5: Absolutely. We've also had people have panic attacks. Oh. We've had to call ambulances, <laughs> um, which is very satisfying for me as a dramatist.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
5: and I think, I think what the gentlemen are hitting on is exactly right. Like, we enter into the ritual space in the theater, and it is both real and not real. It is both true and false. And I think that actually highlights how much else in the civilization is arbitrary. So when you watch an incredibly skilled practitioner put on a sock and give that sock life, and then your body, while you are watching the show, mistakes this experience for reality and responds to stage blood as if it were real blood. You know, at one point in the show, I don't think I'm giving anything away, uh, a kid's ear gets bitten off, Mm. and it's spit at him. And, of course, we're in the theater. This is (laughs) false. Like, this is patently false. (laughs) But people respond as if it were real. And I um, I think more than just participating, the audience is. The body is fooled even while the conscious mind is not. My body is programmed or conditioned so that when I see the red, Squirting out from a particular body part, I am scared. Something has happened. It has been disturbed. While my conscious mind knows uh, that this is theater, my body thinks that there is danger. And the friction between those two, the, the shuttling back and forth between danger and safe, I think is what gives us the dramatic thrill
4: Yeah, Bart, I think I've talked to you about this before, but I remember seeing a marionette show by Daniel Butterworth where – and it's very sort of Brazilian and carnival, but dark and freaky too. And at one point, he lays one of the marionettes down on the stage and goes over to get some other stuff, to do some other stuff. But there's nothing happening quite yet, so your eyes are still on the marionette. And then you realize it's breathing. Its chest is going up and down. Mm -hmm. And I I think I'm having exactly the uh, reaction that Robert's talking about.
0: Yes. Again, you, you you watching that object are adding your imagination to it. The puppeteer is moving the object in a certain way to cause you to say it is breathing. Of course it is not breathing.
4: No, it's breathing, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally breathing. Um, so Robert asks, is one of the things that you're playing with a lot? And this is, um, well, actually, even to go to what you're saying, what you were saying before, that's connected, I think, to this idea that, As you said, we're in doubt in our lives a lot just because of the world we live in about what's real and what's not real. Even if we're not at the theater, we don't know that. But there's a way in which part of the conceit of the puppet is that everything else is also potentially a lie. So the puppet is telling the truth, right? There's a way in which uh, you play with that idea with Tyrone that maybe he's – maybe everybody else is lying and Tyrone might be the only one telling this very horrible and evil truth. I don't know. You want to react to that?
5: Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, in the civilization in which we currently live, we find things that are fairly arbitrary, controlling our lives as if they were real. Do you know what I mean? When you know, subprime mortgages can destroy people's lives, and that's a game we're playing with numbers, do you know what I mean? The tyranny of the arbitrary is something that we, we, we really suffer under. And to have, like, theatrical devices and techniques that acknowledge that and, and play with that is a relief, right? And even if to try to take those things back to the, the first materials and see, like, at base, what is real, and using the false to try to point at that, I think, is uh, it's at least a fun game for uh, a comic playwright to play.
4: And, and John, you were saying before we went on the air, that's a game that puppeteers sometimes don't really entirely stop playing. You said that there have been uh, puppeteers who've been arrested and brought the puppets into court and kind of said, no, it was the puppet?
2: Yeah, that, that's uh, happened more than once, where the, uh, the puppeteer succeeds in convincing the judge or the jury that I didn't say it, the pu- puppets said it, and... And we, and in that case, the legal system engages in the the artifice, the idea that that the puppet is real, or um, uncanny. I was, what we were say, what was discussed a few minutes ago is the, the term that Freud uses: this, not knowing whether something is alive or dead, and playing with that. And that, that uncanniness
4: is is always with with puppetry as well. So, uh, Robert, your play, uh, it, it wor- first of all, you're not a puppeteer, you're not a puppet guy, uh, the way all these people coming to the National Puppetry Festival are going to be puppet people. Uh, but you grew up around puppets, right? To, to the, the Christian puppet thing was part of your childhood?
5: Yes, my mother had a Christian puppet ministry. Yeah. And, and, and even before that, I was held back from kindergarten to first grade, and they used a puppet, a therapy puppet, to explain that situation to us. The puppet was a dolphin, <laughs> yeah. and it was do-so. We had to sing to it every time we would meet with the school counselor. And I think that is the beginning of my fraught relationship with puppets. But I also did. I studied um, puppetry a little bit in Prague with a a man named Petr Matasik when I was in college. So, you know, I was um, drawn to writing, but the puppets are a a common through line in my life.
4: Um, So, um, I'm guessing, do you actually still remember the song that you would sing to the dolphin? You have such such a clear... (laughs) memory.
5: Hey, do so, come on out. That's the part I remember. And you would repeat that over and over until the dolphin came out.
4: You know, Bart, you were saying that the, you and John were saying before the show, this world of Christian puppetry is an outlier world, but also not an outlier world. You've got students coming in who are part of that, yes. right? Yes.
0: Uh, within our student body, we have people who come from the Christian puppetry area. Um, we do not... Uh, in our training at, at UConn, we... Um, try to get the students to figure out how to express their own ideas. So within class projects, if one of the Christian uh, puppeteers wants to express Christian ideas, they're allowed to do so. Um, at the same time, if someone wants to express something that might be rather risque and adult, they're allowed to do so. I don't censor it, but we, all, we do warn our audience at all times.
4: Yeah. So, uh, Robert, what kind of Christian puppetry was your mother doing? What, 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 what do you remember from that?
5: Well, I think uh, I think when these churches and these people in these churches have a little bit more money, it's like, well, what are we going to do with it? Like, obviously, we're going to do something for the kids. We're going to try to keep the kids occupied while we tell them a story they've heard every Sunday for their entire lives. And the answer to that is like, oh, well, there's these packages online. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's something new, and it's something fun, and it's something to put the money to. And then it ends up being like these, you know, two camels. Mm-hmm on the night that the star first appears over Bethlehem and the camels are talking. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And the scripts are are they're not great. I mean, some of them some of them are good, but uh, in a way it's it's also a sort of fun reappropriation. You know what I mean? Because they're puppets and because they're slight, it allows for people to take the divine stories and dirty them up a little bit and cute them up a little and funny them up a little bit, and I think that's one of the most powerful things that any art form, especially an art form that is not viewed as a high or holy art form, like you can reappropriate, you can you can take the master narrative of the civilization and make it your own. You can fold, spindle, and mutilate it until it looks more like your life. And I think that's um, I think that's really beautiful.
4: And well, John, also one thing the puppets are good at doing is taking something abstract and making it real, or taking something that's difficult to understand, even sometimes taking a piece of literature that's difficult to relate to. I think I saw, I think it was one of your students, Dubar, somebody who'd made a puppet movie out of some obscure Nathaniel Hawthorne piece that I'm sure I wouldn't get all the way through reading. But a puppet can kind of take something. uh, I mean, a lot of religious concepts are abstractions, right?
2: Yeah, because it it becomes uh, real. It's this object, like, like a crucifix, thinking of the history of religious puppetry, or a Javanese... Uh, puppet uh, javanese uh, Asian and African puppets are really connected with religion um, interestingly, along the lines that Robert was talking about but it becomes it 's this object that 's right there, an idol or or a a statue and and everybody attaches meaning to it in their own different ways, but you know it 's in the case of uh, Christian puppetry or Christian ritual, you know that 's a kind of holy object so uh, it, it, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And as you're saying, it's concrete. It's made out of wood or, or cloth or something. It's, it's really right there. It's not, it doesn't, it's not an abstraction at
4: all. So um, we're talking in, uh, in studio to John Bell and Bart Rocco Burton. They are the two dons of the eastern Connecticut puppet, m- puppet mafia, uh, a very powerful Cosa Nostra <laughs> indeed. And we're talking to Robert Askins, who's got a huge hit on Broadway Uh, with hand to God so Robert one of the things that you really did was take this puppet idea and you know I mean John and Bart they live in communities of puppet makers and puppet masters and puppeteers you took this puppet idea and you dropped it into a world of actors and a director who just they're not puppet people one of the first things that had to happen was the guy who's the lead in your show uh, who is going to be both playing the human being and the puppet um, he made his first version of the puppet, right? There wasn't there wasn't a Tyrone sitting around for him to learn on. I, my understanding is he, he made the first Tyrone.
5: Uh, yeah, that's true. Steve, um, we were going to do the very first reading. Um, we were all sort of involved in a, a theater company called EST with a young playwright unit called Youngblood, and Steve had been doing work for me and with me for a long time. And the first version we were doing was just at music stands, and the director uh, had mentioned that maybe we would use a... a Uh, an oven mitt for the puppet and steve was like no i've got it you know most of my job in this reading is is interacting with this puppet i need something at least a little bit believable so he just searched online for easiest puppet to make (laughs) uh and he found the sock puppet which is sort of a muppet style with these two arms that you could make and what was really genius about that and i think this is uh, what's amazing to me about kermit as opposed to the rest of the muppets is that with the sock, you can see him articulating his knuckles underneath the fabric, which gives a wider range of facial features to the puppet. And Kermit, if I'm not, cor- if I'm not incorrect, Kermit and maybe his cousin or nephew or whatever are the only ones that are built like that. Everybody else is the, the soft styrofoam head. And so they get less articulation. They have less facial features. It's Kermit's world, and everybody else just lives in it. Um, Anyway, but Steve (laughs) made that puppet and it just sort of went off from there. And it was, I think, uh, Steve definitely acknowledged the traditions of puppetry and, like, studied with different people. But I also think he really got to um, build his own vocabulary in making this. Like, we never made an attempt to hide the movement of his mouth. Do you know what I mean? Like, the the gesture of that combined two-voice character, Jason and Tyrone, is that Tyrone is saying the things that Jason can't. So it's interesting to watch his lips move even as Tyrone is speaking. There's something, again, like the dead, not dead. It is separate but not separate. And I think that's one of the difficult things to understand about the personality. There are many voices in my head. They fight for my attention. I am not one thing. Sort of the terrible lies of narrative is that character is one thing or at most two things. And we do not have... Um, the story constructions that allow us to explore duality very well.
4: You know, uh, Robert. I mean, I have worked a couple of times with Barts of puppets, and it doesn't take very long for you, for for me, or I think for people who are around puppets, to start. Having that line blur a bit, you know, about, uh, and, and no matter what you tell yourself, no matter how clear you are, this is a puppet, this is a person, these, the, the two are not the same thing. Boy, it just doesn't take very long before it gets kind of muddy. And I'm wondering, just as going through an incredibly rigorous rehearsal uh, schedule and followed by a performance schedule, did that start to get a little muddy and freaky for the actors, for, for everybody else involved in the production?
5: Absolutely. At one point, you know, um, Steve, his fiancee at the time, but now his wife, uh, we're all pretty good friends. And she was saying at one point she woke up and Steve's hand was in the air looking down at him like Tyrone in the middle of the night. Um, and she's a good storyteller, but I don't think that's I don't think that's crap. Um, and Steve also, you know, during the rehearsal process, sometimes it would come to a halt because Tyrone was doing material. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Steve, Steve, of course, was doing Tyrone doing material, but Tyrone, the character, was also just stopping rehearsal, making jokes, mm-hmm. and the thing of it is, we let him.
4: Mm-hmm. Like
5: wa- We were having a good time. But you, um, yeah, you,
4: you cut him more slack than you would have cut Stephen.
5: Exactly. You yeah. know, Maritz, our director, was just—he was rolling on the floor laughing. As whereas, I think. If another actor would have pulled that, he would have tried to get us on back on track very quickly.
4: I'm, I'm wondering how – but, you know, for Bart and John, I mean, you deal with people who have puppets in their blood, right? It's just right. sort of – so, I mean, maybe they're the ones who are the most clear-headed about it, but maybe not. I don't know. What's – I want to hear from both of you. But, Bart, what's your take on that?
0: Um, well, my students I, I work with constantly and um, – from my perspective, they are looking at the puppet as an instrument that mm-hmm. they're expressing themselves with. So um, I don't see them getting caught in it. But they are also th- – I mean there, there are times, as Robert is saying, where the puppet says something that you didn't know it was going to say. Yeah. And uh, and it's shocking. Right. It's really shocking. You mean
4: the puppet says something that, that you, the puppeteer, didn't know it was going to say? Yeah. Correct. Correct. Yeah, John, you're nodding.
2: Yeah, yeah, because it uh, it opens up the, these parts of your brain that that you wouldn't other, otherwise have access to. I think the, the, along the lines that Robert is saying, you you, you do start saying things that uh, that you wouldn't say if you didn't have the, if you weren't opera, operating the puppet. Um, So I I think that's totally true. I I think with puppetry, you're engaged in this eternal moment of play. Like kids, you know, kids who are 8 and 10, they can play with toys for a long time and totally invest themselves with that. And with puppetry, there's something similar going on because you're aware of who you are and you're aware of who the puppets are. So you don't get confused, but you need to play with it all the time in order to kind of figure out what the puppets want to do. And that, that idea of what the puppets want to do is also something that puppeteers feel. I th- like, like when we're loading st- uh, puppets in or out, uh, we were loading out last night from our studio. It's like we're always saying, like, well, where does this want to go? Where does the object want to go? Where does the puppet want to go? Because it's not like I, where do you, you want to put it? It's, it's this idea of the, the agency of the object that's always there. And, and we're playing with that back and forth all the time.
0: P- play is a really key in, uh, element in puppetry. Uh, one one thing that I use in the puppet arts program is uh, a thing in German called der Spieltrieb, which means the play instinct, Those thi- that thing that we're taught to leave behind as we get into high school. That's what I'm looking for in my kids, is the ability to play.
4: Um, Robert Askins, you went into this as the playwright. You weren't a puppet virgin, as we said. You were surrounded by uh, Christian puppets growing up. But was there... Was the original concept maybe a little bit more glib than this has wound up being? In other words, I'm going to invent this character, and he's going to have a puppet, and the puppet's going to be evil and possessed and say all this demonic stuff. And, and um, I mean, did this sort of, in all the ways that we're talking about right now, did it get more uncanny than you were really expecting it to?
5: No. No. Absolutely not. I mean, I've come from, this is the first comedy I've written. Everything I wrote before was sort of dark, bizarre westerns or you know, sort of semi-Greek white trash tragedy. (laughs) Um, Cool. Tyrone is specifically designed to make darkness palatable. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Um, Because I was noticing in play, in the theater, in America, it's difficult to say the hard, dark truth and not have people turn away. Mm -hmm. So Tyrone was written not to be cute and funny, he was written to be the most palatable way to say some of the darkest things. And that's been fairly successful. Also, like, uh, sometimes the theater's a very safe place. We go in and we know what we expect from a play, and we don't expect it to behave badly, right? Mm -hmm. And when it does begin to behave badly, we're a little bit offended because the theater is almost like church. And Tyrone is a way to confuse that and to disrupt that and to have the play behave badly at the same time as it continues to entice.
4: So uh, I know you have to go So last question. Uh, Having said everything that that you and the other two guys have said so far, let's go back to that first question. So when people freak out and bolt out of the theater and run up the aisle or have panic attacks and you have to call the ambulance or whatever, what do you think is happening to them? I mean, it's something... The involving that supposedly safe, churchy space the being fractured. That, that seems to be part of it. Is that what, what's going on, or are they like really afraid of Tyrone in a different way?
5: Uh, the first production of um, the Eumenides, which is the last mm-hmm. play in the mm-hmm.
2: um
5: historically the lore is that when the Furies come on stage to hound Orestes, there was a woman uh, in the audience who was pregnant, and she miscarried. Wow, right? Like that's that's the lore, yeah. And that's how dangerous theater can be. Mm-hmm. You know, Ibsen caused riots.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: You know, and this is something that is again false, but it's also so writ into the DNA of our social artistic understanding that it has the power to essentially disturb the way we live. Not just our bodies, but the way the civilization functions. The theater is a loaded gun. And not many people want to pick it up.
6: <laughs>
4: all right. I'm well,
5: very interested in that.
4: Yeah, it, and we're well. First of all, thank you so much for your time. Congratulations on your hit. If people want to meet Lamb Chop from Hell, uh, <laughs> they should go see Hand to God. Thanks for being with us, Robert Askins.
5: My pleasure. Have a good day.
4: Okay, so we're going to take a break. We'll come back with more. of John, more of Bart. You're going to meet Peter Schumann from uh, Bread and Puppet Theater as well. We'll talk about the Puppet Festival coming to us. <laughs>
7: It's feeling
4: And we're back. We're back with more puppets and puppetry. Uh, in studio with me, as I said before, we have Bar- Bart Rockerburton Jr. He is director of the Puppet Arts Program at the University of Connecticut, a Position he's held since 1990. He's also the festival director of this 2015 National Puppetry Festival. Runs from August 10th to the 16th. Uh, John Bell with us, director of the Ballard Inst- Institute and Museum of Puppetry and associate professor of puppetry, author of many books on puppetry as well. Joining us now also, Peter Schumann. Uh, he is founder and director of the legendary Bread and Puppet Theater, which is based in Glover, Vermont, currently the subject of an exhibition, Speak Up, Speak Out, Bread and Puppet Theater and Activist Art at UConn's William Benton Museum of Art through October 11th. So Peter Schumann, you know, uh, just to sort of add your voice to the conversation, there's um, a way in which we were sort of talking before with Robert Askins and with Bart and John Uh, about this notion that if everything else is a lie, then the puppets can tell the truth. Now, we were talking about that more sort of psychologically and socially, but another way in which this can work is sort of at the level of activism, of satire, sometimes maybe even uh, counter-establishment, counter-government demonstrations, right? That the puppets can say stuff that nobody else is allowed to say. Is that one of the functions they have for you?
6: Yeah, I think that's... Also, historically, how they started to be what they are. So they were able to say things, uh, sometimes with the use of a swazel that uh, normally people couldn't say. And they said it loudly and clearly, and they were often thrown out for that loudness and clarity. And yeah, records, a lot of records of puppetry are in police records. (laughs) <laughs> so, yep, yeah, that's how it is.
4: Um, so, um, I want Bart and John to tell us a little bit more about the festival that's coming. Peter w- and Brett and Puppet will be part uh, of the festival. But so give us a sense, Bart. What's what's coming to uh, to Yukon Stores Mansfield?
0: Well, uh, from August 10th through the 16th, we are going to be presenting over 20 uh, performances uh, coming from French Canada, from Brazil, uh, from across the United States. They are... Varied performances, some of them are for adults, some of them are for families um, variety of of uh, types of puppets as well and actually, I should be, let John talk about this because he is artistic director of the festival i'm I'm director dealing with the budgets <laughs>
4: so yeah John, give us a sense of some of the i mean one of the things that's Maybe it's always been the case. I mean, there's a lot of things that you can call a puppet. But I feel almost as though those boundaries are under pressure all the time, being stretched all the time. What are some of the edgier things coming in? Well, uh, we have
2: traditional marionette shows. Um... Uh, a Wizard of Oz show uh, from the Midwest. We've got tabletop shows. We have a whole toy theater mini festival, which is tabletop flat cutout work. Uh, the Bread and Puppet Theater was doing a giant spectacle called Captain Boycott, which I'm sure Peter could talk about about the history of uh, the actual Captain Boycott and 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 what the the contexts of that might mean for 20th 21st century activism, one could say. Um, we're, uh, we're doing a big outdoor puppet parade on Saturday the 15th, uh, an instant puppet pageant um, directed by uh, a bread and puppet veteran, actually, Sarah Petey. Uh, outdoor shows, indoor shows, um, some shadow shows. So, So we're hitting a lot of the different ways that puppets um, function in the world today, and in the critical exchange sessions we 're talking a little bit about robotics and um, new technologies which which are totally connected to this world of puppets and performing objects
0: and we 're also running a film festival mm-hmm. uh, simultaneously
2: right there 's a real uh, real puppetry film festival uh, that every day is going to present a, a variety of different different uh, puppet-on-film projects.
0: And we, we we feel that we have a, a really broad uh, spectrum, a ro- broad roster of talent. Uh, Bread and Puppet will open the festival on August 10th uh, in the evening in Jorgensen Performance Center. The next night, we're presenting... Uh, Uh, I Am Big Bird, the film that has been released. Mm -hmm. But what we're doing to make it different is that Carol and Debbie Spinney are going to be sitting on stage with a remote control so they can stop and do live commentary on the film simultaneously. And that event's going to be introduced by Cheryl Henson, Jim Henson's daughter. Just yesterday we cinched in Sonia Manzano to co-host Late Night with Eugene O'Neill. She plays Marie on Sesame Street.
3: We should
4: mention you have Eugene O'Neill in puppet form here right now, right? Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I I wish there was, uh, you know, a more visual component to our radio show. So, um, Peter Schumann, you know, uh, at this puppetry festival, there's going to be a lot of things that are going to be called puppetry. Um, Is that is that a category that's really interesting to you? Do you do you either care or not care what gets called a puppet? Is there something that's a definition that you think needs to be adhered to or is the landscape completely open?
6: Well, I don't know. I mean, we are modernists. We are going to bring a virtual reality show. People are going to sit there. We're going to put a, a screen on top of everybody's head, and then we wire everybody's brain to that, and then we press buttons, and then everybody individually can get their own show out of what we do.
4: All right. So, see? It is it is endless. Well, I mean, uh, well, John Bell, I mean, there there is a way in which... Puppetry is in in, in an odd um, axis. Uh, on, on the one hand, it really is one of the most traditional forms of entertainment. It's got to be one of the oldest forms of entertainment, but, but, payment, but also one of the tradition, most traditional and the most basic. I mean, in the novel Ridley Walker, you know, technology and civilization have been essentially destroyed. Everything that we have right now is a way of moving information around, including virtual reality screens that you put over our heads and inject right. puppetry into our brains. That's all gone. There's no. And, and so things get explained by puppets because that's what's left. So there's sort of that. But there's also in a way which puppetry is constantly connected to modernism. Whatever yeah. modernism is at a moment, there's some reason why puppets get plugged into that.
2: Well, it's, it's always had this connection to really uh, basic and traditional puppetry um, uh, like Punch and Judy uh, is a popular show. Uh, Amy Trumpeter will be performing right. a version of that at the festival. And that's really at a, mi- a medieval theater piece. It's got the devil in it. We were talking with Robert Askins earlier. The devil f- performs in Punch and Judy. You don't see the devil performing too much in in live theater. So you have these older forms, um, marionettes and hand puppets that are traditional, that are Western. You have non-Western forms. But then you have these larger questions of of the objects. It's always about focusing attention on the object, whether it's a wooden puppet or a cloth sock puppet or a shadow show or something like that. And the objects we have with us today, as Peter was saying, are there's a lot of screens, there's a lot of machines, there's robots, there's digital technology. Th- those are all cases in which we're looking at the material world, um, uh, uh, or vibrant matter, and, uh, and not at human beings themselves. And so uh, inherently, there's a, there's a connection between traditional forms and, and and modern forms. I think a lot of Peter's work is fascinating because of the materials he chooses. Like in the exhibition at the Benton Museum right now, um, modern uh, materials like celastic, but also wood that that the. the, the, the Bread and Puppet gathers from its northern Vermont home and, and paper and papier-mâché cheap materials, um, easily accessible materials. So the, whatever the materials are, the materials are saying a lot about the nature of the performance.
4: Right. We have a clip of Peter Schumann talking about his Cheap Art Manifesto. Let's hear that.
6: The White Cheap Art Manifesto. People have been thinking too long that art is a privilege of the museums and the rich. Art is not business. It does not belong to banks and fancy investors. Art is food. You can't eat it, but it feeds you. Art has to be cheap and available to everybody. Art is cheap. way. <laughs> so... Peter Schumann, uh
4: those are your words and, and obviously they fit very well with what uh John is saying. Although it seems as though with puppetry there's a lot of options, ranging from the most basic kinds of materials to, as both of you are essentially saying, space age materials, robotic materials, and computer materials. Or or does that sort of violate the cheap art manifesto? No. It's you
6: know, it's in keeping. I think we, uh, well, this time, the biggest thing in the show we are bringing is really uh, a lot of nude bodies, a lot of nudity, oh my God, piles, a whole population, a nude population. So where can you get a nude population to to perform? Uh, All you need is a a bunch of uh, cornstarch and paper and clay and... You can produce them in a few days. So it's uh, the possibilities are pretty endless. And uh, that's you will see in this festival various interpretations of those possibilities.
4: You know, Bart, I, I, I could be wrong. This is sort of could be just me as a Connecticut resident thinking this. But I always feel like, you know, there's... What's it called? charleville mezieres you know, which is where the Ecole Supérieure Nationale des Arts uh, de la Marionette, that's a, in northern France. It's like the Mecca of European puppetry. And then I feel like there's sort of stores, right? You guys have so much. I mean, what is it about stores in Mansfield, Connecticut? How did all this Puppet, puppetry energy get collected there?
0: Well, it started by a man named Frank Ballard, who was my teacher. Um, Frank was a puppeteer from the age of five. He saw a puppet show, The Proctors, when he was five, went home and started making puppets out of the only material in his father's garage he could make the puppets from, concrete. Mm. And um, he worked puppetry all his life. He came here in the late 50s to be the first technical director of the Jorgensen Performance Center. But his puppets were always there. Mm And in 1965, he had the opportunity, based on the Academy in Prague, um, to establish an MFA program in the training of puppetry, thinking about what had happened in theater, um, you know, 20 or 30 years earlier, that suddenly theater became a a university subject instead of uh, something that you apprenticed into. and. Frank built the program. Uh, he ran it for 25 years. Um, I came in as he retired in 1990, and now I'm in my 25th year. Mm.
4: So, John, there is just, there's sort of a lot. I mean, there's sort of, I mean, there's kind of two things running side by side there in stores, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, the the yeah, it's it's somewhat complicated to
2: explain, but there's <laughs> two two programs: the Puppet Arts Program, as Bart explained, and um, in, in which I I teach as a, as a professor, and then the Ballard Institute was started uh, with with Frank Ballard's collection, um, but also this idea of preserving the the global arts of puppetry, and uh, we've received a real boost in in the last year and a half with an, uh, a new museum space in downtown stores where we can show all sorts of different work, Um, our global collection, which which lets you see the the worldwide reach of puppetry and its connections to religion and art and politics and entertainment, and then uh, various exhibitions like the... um, our current one of Yukon puppeteers over the past 50 years or before that, an exhibition uh, by Hartford artist Ann Cumberley and her amazing work. And and Rufus and Margot Rose, who were uh, Connecticut puppeteers, very active in, uh, in the early and mid uh, late 20th century. Uh, doing amazing work with marionette so so the Ballad Institute is this sort of public outreach part of it uh, connected with with the teaching uh, of the puppet arts program, and we go back and forth all the time working with students um, with in the two programs so it's, it's a it 's a powerhouse of yeah. puppet uh, interests yeah, we 're we're symbiotic programs
0: that support each other and um, the the educational program is so much richer because of the existence of the Ballard Institute, and I need to say also that the the remarkable support that we're getting from the university at large, from the president to the dean to the, our department heads. Uh, just for the programs, not not to mention this festival coming in, it's amazing.
4: You know, I want to leave a little time for that, for our final segment here. I do want to say that I've had the privilege of working twice now with Bart's puppets. Always Peter and the Wolf, though. I'm 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 typecast. I'm picture. now that you heard my Kermit voice, maybe you'll, like, let me <laughs> let me try to do some other stuff. But I've also had the chance of working a lot with Ann Coverly and her kinetic sculptures. And and as we know from a previous show that Bart and Ann did together, she doesn't always like the P word. Uh, and so uh, here's a little Jim Henson clip about that, too.
1: It's not like talking about the Muppets' real secrets, Secrets? Is it? Do we have secrets? Uh, yes, we do. Yeah. All right, everyone. We don't have to listen to this anymore. No.
0: I know what you're asking
4: for, Jojo, and I suppose you'd like me to talk about puppets. <laughs>
2: did it. Oh no,
7: oh, no, this is terrible. He said the P word. Oh, don't uh, 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 ruin us. Uh, don't look. Don't look. don't look. Don't
4: look in you. here. All right. Well, we're going to talk more about the P word when we come back from this.
7: Well, this has been a good show For me to poop on It was produced by Alex Dubin Much better than those Boring shows about books He always wants to do I could get more entertainment Licking part of my leg Greg Hill handles the WNPR Twitter account What does he do with the other 138 characters after This sucks Producers Betsy Kaplan and Lydia Brown Help with this show because It's cheaper to keep them busy and putting them on the medications they need. The part of Bill Curry was played by Captain Who Cares, He's Ancient History. For show pages, articles, and pictures of the Faith Middleton Show staff sniffing each other, go to the horrible website, wnpr.org. Tomorrow's show is about air conditioning. There's still time to make other plans. And now,
0: back to Collin.
4: All right. We seem to have gotten Triumph the Insult Comic uh, Puppet uh, Dog uh, to get, to do our thank yous. Uh, so that was very disturbing and frightening. So we're going to move on now. Talk a little bit more about the Puppetry Festival. Uh, and by the way, you can go onto their website. John, what's the website? Because I, I just reading the list of all the things that are, are happening, all the performances they're going to be, it took me like a half an hour to go through them all. There's, it's an incredible number of things. Where's the, where can people find out what performances they can go to?
2: Uh, it's National Puppetry Festival 2015. That's the year. URL, but if you Google National Puppet Festival or UConn, you'll, you'll find it. National Puppetry Festival 2015 is the D- URL.
4: Dot com. Dot com, yeah. So one of the things you can do at the Puppetry Festival on Monday, one of those performances, Monday, August 10th at 8 p.m., Captain Boycott. This is uh, Bread and Puppets, uh, and it's a performance in, I think, three parts. Tell us, uh, Peter Schumann, about Captain Boycott. Yeah, except that I don't, I'm not sure Peter is there right now. All right, John, you're going to have to start by telling us a little bit more about Capitol Well, Boycott. as I was saying earlier,
2: it's a uh, – like a lot of bread and puppet shows, it's about a, a, an interesting historical moment, uh, the moment in um, Ireland in the 18th century, I believe, when a landowner uh, who named Boycott, um, uh, who was exploiting the tenant farmers on his land, uh, faced uh, opposition and an uprising from uh, from the tenants – and uh, the show will be performed by 30 volunteers from the, the Connecticut community, which is really inter- an interesting way that Bread and Puppet works. They do giant spectacles very cheaply by incorporating the community. So there'll be 30 people rehearsing with the show. The show, as Peter was saying, involves a lot of um, very large, uh, over-life-size um uh, puppets that are uh basically re- uh, bas relief uh, sculptures made out of of paper uh, paper mache that are like twelve or thirteen feet tall. there are wonderful uh, um, stage uh, tricks with with uh, giant curtains there 's music there 's brass music there 's big choral movements there 's interesting text that Schumann writes that sometimes is oblique but gets wants to get at the nature of uh, what drove people in the, uh, the 18th century uh, to rise up against this exploiter um, boycott and what they did as a, a nonviolent uh, active movement. They invented the term boycott in order to um, support or uh, the the things that they wanted to have happen. So it's it's a it's a traditional story of 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 oppression and reaction to oppression, performed uh, by these incredibly skilled puppeteers, including uh, one member of the company, Joe Jotharian, who's a puppet arts graduate, is now part of the Puppet uh, Bread and Puppet Company, and all these volunteers. So it's it's uh, going to be colorful, lively, a lot of music, dance, etc.
4: You know, uh, by the way, it turns out that Peter Schumann had to uh, rush off to a rehearsal. uh, That is so fitting. Uh, So that's where he is. So, you know, Bart, um, in in the Robert Askins play in Hand to God, you've got a lot of actors, regular actors who are working with – Puppets were reacting to puppets, and, and Stephen Boyer, it just turns out, was happened to be really great at learning to do puppets and do, work with this particular puppet and, and pull off the, the characters that he has to pull off. But it seems to me there's a real difference. I mean, it, it's not axiomatic that a good actor is going to be good with puppets or a good puppeteer, or that a good puppeteer is automatically a good actor. What are the the similarities? What are the differences?
0: Uh, yeah, Absolutely. Um, what I'm looking for, I'm, I'm going to go that way, Colin. What I'm looking for when I bring students into the program is the ability to create. I'm looking for creativity. Mm-hmm. I'm also looking for someone who's willing to work very hard. Um, people think puppetry is a lot of fun, and it is. It's a great deal of fun. It's very satisfying, but it's a lot of work. Um, the difference between the, the two the two performers, um, <laughs> we, uh, you're looking at it from a puppeteer's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, We say the actor pretends the puppet is.
4: (laughs) Well, you know, that's – I mean, although it's interesting, John, the way in which – those kinds of things interface at times. I mean, that's certainly happening in Hand to God, but there was a production of the Public Theater a few years ago, I think I even have the name of it here, in which there was, in which Anne Frank had to appear on stage. And they decided, because Anne Frank wasn't really going to appear on stage, that it was uh, uh, going to be sort of a vision. Um, they, they thought about different things that they could do. They could try to put some effect, layer it on to an actual actress on stage. They could try to do something with lights and mist and stuff like that. But they ultimately decided on a marionette built by, I think, somebody named Atchison. You probably know who that person is. Oh, Matt Atchison. Yeah, Matt Atchison. So, yeah, Anne was represented by – the play was called Compulsion. Anne was represented by a a a foot-and-a-half-high marionette uh, uh, designed by the the aforementioned Matt Atchison in a little red dress. And she would come and stand on the desk of this writer who was obsessed with Anne Frank. And so, I mean, this is the other thing that I think happens more and more is you have – a problem on stage. How do you deal with something that isn't easily addressable by traditional dramaturgy? And then you turn to a puppet or a marionette.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think that can do that because it, it's it's hard to present a character like uh, Anne Frank. You can you you can act a, a character, and that that's been done before. Um, uh, but it, a puppet is 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 really there. I, I I was thinking about the, the, the challenge for actors and I th- I think it's about shifting focus. I um, if the actor is able to, to shift focus and, and, and take this piece of wood and string and cloth with the red dress as Anne Frank that's a foot tall on desk seriously then it's all going to work out fine and I think sometimes and I don't know if it's about actor training and this is one of the great things about the Puppet Arts Program and, and its relationship to actor training and theater training at UConn is that people get that sense of how to work with puppets. It's not really that hard. It's just a question of trusting the puppet and being able to, yeah. being able to work with the puppet on stage and say, well, yeah, that is Anne Frank. I'm talking to this thing. People do this with ventriloquist dummies all the time. And to just give it that legitimacy. Actors
0: have to believe in the life of the puppet they're working with. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. the puppet is going to upstage them. Uh, Several years ago, I worked here with the Hartford Stage for one of their playwright um, uh, uh, workshops. And Michael Eliano, I hope I'm saying his name right, did a piece called The Children. He had gone to see a production of Medea. And this was shortly after uh, the Susan Smith incident when the woman drove her children into the lake in the mm. station wagon. Michael went to see Medea and he came out of it saying, why didn't somebody stop her? She mm. said she was going to kill the children. Why mm. didn't she stop her? So he, he wrote a play mm. based on that and asked me to add puppets in as the children. And at first I thought, this is not puppetry. But after we did it, the audience responded by saying that the, the puppets protected them from hearing an actual child actor say those words. Mm -hmm. And I had never thought of puppetry as protection. But they were right. It worked.
4: And it seems like that barrier, too, is breaking down a little bit. I mean, the the thing of the public I just talked about, I saw the most mind-blowing production of Midsummer Night's Dream. It was by an Irish theater group, I think the Druid Theater maybe. And they had some work with puppets on stage, but it wasn't a puppet show. And when they wanted – they had no actor cast as Puck. When they wanted puck, they would just make them on stage. They'd have like a flat iron that would kind of, they'd make it kind of appear to float in the air, and they'd put some ears and stuff like that. And then any actor could voice pup, puck, and it wasn't. So this wasn't all puppets, and it seems as though that I don't know, John, John, maybe that line has always been blurred. But it seems like, you know, something that doesn't necessarily have to be a puppet thing or a non-puppet thing. There's a lot of convergence.
2: Yeah, I think I think objects, uh, you know, like a found object used to represent puck. Um, Objects have a a certain power with them that that is routinely accessed historically in all sorts of different cultures. Uh, You know, fetish objects they talk about or we're talking about Freud's idea of the uncanny or idols, you know, in in religious practices or or like the way people – uh, relate to their, their smartphones, you know, that's an object that people are dealing with routinely and they have at the utmost confidence in this object. They're, they're at paying attention and, and giving legitimacy to that object at an amazing level. So so those objects uh, are, are functioning all, all the time. I, I was thinking that a, a, an interesting flexible flexibility aspect of puppets is that they routinely t- – uh, uh, allow people to perform different gender, different race. Um, we talk, There's a lot of discussion about gender and race now, and puppets are always have always been in the middle of that. So it's yeah. I think at the
4: festival there's even going to be at least one act that involves rap and hip hop too. So yes. um, absolutely, get yourself out to Eastern Connecticut from the 10th to the 16th. Check the schedule. Find something you want to see. Thanks to all of our wonderful guests, especially John and Bard who are here in the studio with us, and thanks to Alex Dubin. He's the guy who really pulled all this together. I can't believe what uh, triumph. Said about him. So unfair. (laughs) So unfair. Outrageous.